This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hey, just before I begin this episode, this is my last reminder that the listener survey is open for a little bit longer. WTTEpodcast.com slash survey. I've got some really amazing ideas and feedback so far, and I'd love to hear your opinions too. WTTEpodcast.com slash survey. Thanks. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. Stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. Well, I grew up in the countryside in Kent, and I grew up by some woods behind my house, and I think the honest answer is that I just got fascinated by how different my feelings were about this environment. So it was where I wanted to go to be happy, it was where I wanted to go if, if I was sad and I wanted to escape, it was sort of my safe place. But it was also somewhere that would like change immediately. If I heard a noise or if it was slightly dusky or if my dog ran off or like she even just looked at a tree weirdly, I would suddenly just feel completely freaked out. So I think I was always kind of interested in that kind of dualistic relationship to the woods, I guess. The forest is a place we have very mixed feelings about. Forests can be calm and peaceful, full of ancient and natural beauty. Until they're not. The forest, in so many ways, is a place we fear. Forests are dark and dense and overgrown, all too easy to get lost in. They hold secrets and mysteries and creatures we'd rather not meet alone, far from home. And if the monsters of the forest don't get us, then the forest itself will. The strange, malevolent powers of the trees themselves. The forest can be a terrifying place. So we need a guide, someone to explain the mysteries of the forest. So my name is Elizabeth Parker, and I published this book about creepy woods last year. And my background is, yeah, I did my master's on kind of creepy, dark retellings of Little Red Riding Hood, which led me further into the woods and then got me excited about wanting to do a whole PhD on it and then eventually turned it into a book. And otherwise, I work at St Mary's University in Twickenham, London. So this is the third in my loosely connected series on places in fiction and popular culture. There's been Antarctica and deserts, and in this episode, I want to look at forests. More specifically, I want to look at the forest as a strange, creepy, terrifying place. As a place that combines nature and the Gothic. Eco-Gothic, as it's called. And Dr Elizabeth Parker's work is in precisely this area of the Eco-Gothic. It's an idea that maybe needs a little bit of explaining. So what you're doing there when you say eco-gothic is you're looking at that juxtaposition and going, what happens when we put those two words or two ideas next to each other? So first you've got the different ways that nature features in gothic texts. Think about our big gothic texts, kind of classic ones, new ones. Um, Where do we find nature in there? And I'm thinking about kind of sublime landscapes, mountainscapes, forests, icescapes, um, which all feature in the kind of big names like Dracula, Frankenstein, um, etc. And then also kind of the dark green Gothic, how plants come in, foliage, how the ocean comes in, Gothic animals. So that's nature in Gothic literature. Then you've got the Gothic in nature. So how we think about the natural world, the non-human world, the more than human world, um, and how we find or see or, or kind of put the Gothic into that. So with that, I'm kind of thinking about, I guess, to put it really simply, nature is something that's really quite frightening. Nature that's red in tooth and claw. 
um, where we're kind of moving beyond the words worthy in tradition and we're moving into what's frightening and what Simon Estock calls ecophobia, which is just literally the fear of nature, the fear of the non-human. The last thing to consider then is that gothic is not the same as horror. And so even though eco-gothic and eco-horror are sometimes used interchangeably, they are different. And I think horror is something that's more immediate. It's more events-based. It often has humans at the center of it. And when you're looking at eco-horror, you've always got that strand of nature's revenge, right? Like humans have done something bad to nature, we've harmed nature, and we need to be punished for it. And nature comes back and does that. And in doing so, it raises environmental awareness in some way. So when you think eco-horror, the kind of the textbook examples are the 1970s creature features. So lots of like, you know, we've poisoned the sea and now there's like, you know, monstrous animals coming out. We've somehow got a nuclear power plant that's leaking into things. And so, again, we're being punished by nature that we've somehow harmed. And I think the word gothic is very much tied to setting. So when you say the word gothic, I immediately think castles, convents, large houses. But I also think kind of spooky forests, mountainscapes, uh, etc. So I think eco-gothic encapsulates that sense of ambience and atmosphere. And it doesn't necessarily have the human at the centre. And I also think the word gothic, something that I really love about the gothic, is it encapsulates that sense of fear and desire at the same time, which I think is something that you find in eco-gothic narratives. So the eco-gothic is about ambience and atmosphere and there's this contradictory feeling of both fear and desire. And the forest too has this ability to both enchant us and lure us in while also repelling and terrifying us. So why are we so afraid of the forest? Why are there so many stories, fairy tales and children's stories, gothic novels, horror films with terrifying forests? Well, there are quite a few reasons, it turns out, and lots of them are interconnected. One of the big ones is, of course, that we lose our way in forests, both literally and metaphorically. Going all the way back to the 14th century, it's in a dark forest that Dante's Divine Comedy begins, where the poet has lost his way. Now, Dante had it particularly hard, he had to voyage through the nine circles of hell, climb Mount Purgatory, and ascend through the celestial bodies of paradise before he found his way. But for the rest of us, forests are easy places to get lost in too. Because they're dense and hard to move quickly through, a forest doesn't have to be particularly big to get lost in it. You might be a few hundred metres from the edge and have absolutely no idea. They're vertical spaces, they're difficult to navigate in a very different way to the vast, open and horizontal space of, say, a desert. When you're lost in the forest, you're cut off from the outside world, and there's even a danger that you may lose yourself entirely to the forest. You see this in Victorian and early 20th century imperial adventure tales all the time, where explorers are susceptible to, quote, going native, to regressing once they are lost in forest and jungle spaces. Being cut off from civilization has very real dangers. Take your typical horror film. It's like they always set it up to say like, oh, I've got no phone signal. Oh, I, you know, there's no Wi-Fi here. I can't get data. So again, you're kind of lost from kind of modern civilization. And like you said there, it's about getting metaphorically lost as well. And I think there's that fear that you're not only going to lose kind of 
uh, where you are geographically, but you're also going to lose yourself. You're going to regress in some way. Like this is a site of the unconscious. It's a space where your id is maybe going to champion over your ego. Um, so there's an awful lot of fears going on there about how how you can get lost. We talk about things being uncanny, where the familiar is encountered in an unsettling way. The word was most famously used by Sigmund Freud, using the German unheimliche. And in fact, as Dr. Parker pointed out to me, one of the examples Freud uses of the uncanny in his essay on the topic is of being lost in a forest. When every endeavour, Freud writes, to find the marked or familiar path ends again and again in a return to one and the same spot, recognisable by some particular landmark. So, you know, you walk in what you think is a perfectly straight line and end up back where you started. This, he explains, is uncanny. So we fear forests because they are uncanny and strange and easy to get lost in. They are, to use a particularly apt word, bewildering. They lure us into the wilderness. Strange things also happen in forests in relation to time. The forest is tied to the past. The forest in some ways is kind of timeless um, or that time moves differently in the woods. And that's something that we see play out in a lot of texts. I'm thinking uh, the recent remake or recent-ish remake of The Blair Witch Project plays really interestingly with time moving differently in the woods. Forests are ancient spaces outside time and places where there are dangerous connections to the past. This might be in the form of the savage people who live in the forest in opposition to the urban and the modern world outside. Or this connection to the past may have a religious element. And this is the idea that in the woods there is no God, or in the woods there is the wrong God, or the wrong gods, plural that this is a space of kind of pagan worship, of blood-soaked groves, of, you know, nasty human sacrifice, all this kind of darkness. And that also it's home and habitat to the devil. So you've got these examples, you know, things like Younger Than Brown, where you go into the woods and you're going to meet the devil, things like the witch. So there are plenty of reasons to fear the forest. But how are these fears manifested? How do we see them reflected in fiction and popular culture? Well, I'll leave you on that cliffhanger and take a very quick break to tell you about Headstuff. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, which I'm sure you may be aware. And if you'd like to support the show and get lots of extra bonus content, including a little extra from this episode, then go to headstuffpodcasts.com. So you can find the Words to That Effect page there, as well as the pages of all of the other shows on the network. And you can sign up to become a member of Headstuff Plus, which gives you access to all of the bonus content, not just from this show, but from every show on the network. So have a look, headstuffpodcast.com. And speaking of the network, have a listen to a trailer from one of the other shows, Double Love. This is an amazing show. You should definitely check this out, especially if you read the 1980s book series Sweet Valley High, which I'm sure plenty of people did. Um, the hosts, Karen and Anna, talk you through book by book. Each episode covers a book of what they term the strange and terrifying world of Sweet Valley High. It's really, really funny. It's a great show. You should definitely check it out. Have a listen. This is how it's always been. Double Love is a podcast in which we explore the strange and terrifying world of Sweet Valley High, book by book. Join me, Anna Carey. And me, Karen Moynihan. As we revisit one of the maddest series of books ever written. 
or ghostwritten. If you ever read about the perfect blonde Wakefield twins, Elizabeth and Jessica, with their eyes the colour of the Pacific Ocean, then you might enjoy listening to us absolutely tearing them to shreds. Affectionately, of course. But of course. And even if you didn't, there's still plenty of drama, kidnappings, stolen boyfriends and seemingly mandatory school dances to entertain you. Find us on the Headstuff Podcast Network and wherever you get your podcasts. So moving from the strange and terrifying world of Sweet Valley High to the equally strange and terrifying world of the eco-gothic, how are our fears of the forest manifested? Well, number one has got to be monsters. The forest is full of monsters, much like all those places we fear because they're unknown. You know that thing on old maps where the cartographer has no idea what's beyond the edges of the map and just writes Hicks and Dracones, here be dragons? And then there'd be all these little drawings of kind of creepy ocean monsters or forest monsters or whatever it might be. And I think that comes down to the idea of it's really difficult as a human being to just kind of go, that's unknown. Um, because the unknown is absolutely terrifying. And if you don't have a word for it or a face for it or some kind of form for it, it, it's just kind of completely overwhelming. So I think, you know, we're imaginative creatures, so we start to kind of give faces, give forms, give names to that. Um, And I think that's where monsters come in. And forests kind of traditionally, their space is uncharted uh, by humans. They're kind of the opposite of civilization um, in some ways. And on top of that, they're a space that we can cast things out to. So when there's something, I mean, you you know, monsters, uh, stereotypically, they're manifestations of our anxiety, but they're also manifestations of the things that we don't want. So if you start looking into uh, monster theory, again and again, you'll see this argument where the monster is really us. Like we think of the monster as the other, but dun, 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 you know, plot twist, the monster is actually us or it shows us something about ourselves that we don't like. There are monsters in the forest reflecting the things we don't want to recognise in ourselves. We cast things out into the wilderness because we're frightened of them or we don't want to acknowledge them. And then they manifest as monsters lurking in those dark and forbidding spaces. Two of the most prominent monstrous figures we find hark back to two classic children's tales with gothic forests. Little Red Riding Hood and Hansel and Gretel. So you've got the big bad wolf and the wicked witch. And all the variations on these two. These, I think, are the kind of classic monsters of the woods um, that dominate a lot of our kind of textual examples. But additionally, I think you've also got a third category of, I think I rather uh, uninspiringly call ambiguous monsters, which is where you've got these monsters that don't have a kind of clear form, that they mix lots and lots of different things together. And I think that makes sense because monsters... In a lot of ways, the reason why monsters frighten us is because they mix together the human and the non-human. One of the best novels I read last year was Max Porter's Lanny. It's such an extraordinary book. It's really inventive and unusual and with this just breathtaking section in the middle. It's the story of a boy, Lanny, and the village he lives in. And another character observing everyone and everything there's a type of forest monster or green man dead papa toothwort and like so many forest monster tales the problem is not the monster it's the people in the case of lanny when something goes very wrong which i won't spoil the villagers turn on each other gossiping accusing and ultimately finding a scapegoat they can blame Another take on the monster in the forest is in M. Night Shyamalan's The Village, a favourite of Dr. Parker's. I will warn you, if you have got through the last 17 years of your life without seeing The Village, 
you're about to find out the twist unless you skip forward 30 seconds right now. But the twist in that film is that it's actually the elders of the village are dressing up as these creatures and they draw heavily on mythology of why we fear the forest to create these monsters and to create their visuals. And they are that absolute kind of textbook mixture of the human and the more than human in a very disturbing way. They have kind of branches flowing down their backs. They're also wearing red capes. They look like little red riding from them from the back, but they also have kind of wolf fur going down their front. So they're playing with that kind of monster element there as well. Um, so that would be my kind of favorite monster text. Sometimes, though, it's not monsters lurking in the forest. It's the forest itself. Take the film Evil Dead, for example. Which has, you know, a very famous and nasty and brutal forest scene in it, but it's it's your traditional kind of cabin in the woods uh, horror film. And there's a scene where a woman goes up into the woods, she's attacked, and when she comes back, she starts screaming. Uh, that she's been hurt, that she's been hunted. Um, And the immediate reaction is, you know, did someone or something do this to you? Um, Is there someone in the woods? Is there something in the woods? And she says, no, it was the woods themselves. They're alive. The trees are alive. Which is particularly weird and terrifying to us humans, I think. We know trees are alive, we know they grow and move, obviously, but it just doesn't really register. There was a famous book a few years ago, um, I think it was by Peter Wollobin, called The Hidden Life of Trees. And he talks about how all of us understand that trees are alive. We'd be like, oh yes, trees are alive. But at the same time, all of us kind of understand that trees are objects, or that's how we conceptualise them. So we background trees and plants, and we have something that is sometimes referred to as plant blindness, where we sort of forget that they're alive. We talked already about time in forests, and part of the creepiness of trees moving is to do with speed. Trees work to a different timescale than humans. They live for hundreds of years, sometimes thousands of years. The oldest tree in the world is nearly 5,000 years old, which is kind of insane when you think about it. And... Trees obviously move and grow, but it's not until you see the process sped up that you realise how deliberate and directed it all is. I remember years ago being completely amazed at sped up footage of plants in a David Attenborough series, The Private Life of Plants. It was the first time I think I'd ever really seen how directed the actions of plants are, which we just don't recognise because obviously it happens so slowly. It also got me thinking about the Ents in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. They are long-lived, slow-moving tree shepherds, and they painstakingly deliberate on everything, at a pace which just seems incomprehensibly slow for a human or hobbit. And so all of this is to say that if you're walking through a forest and you realise the trees themselves are alive and trying to murder you, it's particularly terrifying. I think a text for me that that really effectively uh, illustrates this um, is... Uh, the Willows by Eldon and Blackwood, uh, which is kind of a, a famous uber eco-gothic text in a way. And, and when you start looking at origins of eco-gothic, people talk quite a lot about Eldon and Blackwood and uh, Arthur Macken and that kind of era that uh, has got quite a lot of attention. Um, but The Willows, if you, don't, if you don't know it, is a novella in which uh, two men go camping on this little island um, and very slowly the trees close in on them. And it's it's unbelievably weird. And I mean, weird with a capital W as well as a lowercase W, uh, where they just kind of wake up. And every time they look out, the trees are just a little bit closer. And to begin with, they think it's in their mind, but it's getting closer and closer and closer. And I think there's something 
in that about the idea that you know trees do move and you know we've all seen kind of sped up footage of plants growing of trees growing and you go oh my goodness they do move they are they are animate they are you know they have maybe sentient isn't quite the right word but there's you know there's a logic there um so yeah that would be an example that i would i would draw on and then a lesser known one but one that i love would be antichrist which i'll warn right now is not for the faint-hearted um but if you are okay with really really disturbing horror that's a very interesting film to look at i haven't seen this film i actually don't know if i want to see this film to be honest (laughs) but anyway i'll leave it up to you So ultimately, the forest can be full of gothic terrors in quite a few different ways. Certainly, a lot of these fears of forests taking their revenge are linked to anxieties about how we treat trees and the natural world, about deforestation, the destruction of rainforests, climate change. We treat trees as objects, but we know they're not. We clear forests for agriculture and urban development, even though we know it's ultimately self-defeating and destroying the planet. And so we can also take a certain pleasure when the trees fight back. We will always, it seems, be conflicted by forests. Like the Gothic more generally, we can enjoy the mixture of fear and desire, the opposition between the enchanted and the monstrous. The eco-Gothic has plenty more to say about our world, and there are many more dark, creepy forests out there where the snap of a twig could be anyone or anything. That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. And a very special thanks to my guest this week, Dr. Elizabeth Parker. For much more on this topic, you can pick up a copy of her book, The Forest and the Eco-Gothic. And importantly, the paperback version is just out with Palgrave, so it's not an insanely priced hardback academic book. And I'll put links to that on the website. You can also check out the Gothic Nature Journal. Everything is free and open access, which is amazing. And issue two is just out. So that's at gothicnaturejournal.com. And I'll put links to everything, of course, to Twitter and the journal, the book, everything else on the website, which is wttepodcast.com. That is also where you'll find the full transcripts of this episode, lots of other links, all of the back episodes, and of course the survey, which I mentioned before. It's at wttepodcast.com slash survey. And finally, to support this show and get lots of bonus episodes, pop on over to headstuffpodcast.com and sign up to become a member. I'll be posting an extra part from this episode there as a bonus, where Dr. Parker talks about the novel you absolutely have to read if you want to know more about this area or you just love the eco-gothic. So, headstuffpodcast.com. And that's it. I'll see you very soon for the next episode. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.